Good morning, Gresham Bible Church. Great to see everybody. One of my favorite Sundays, Church Picnic Sunday. We may or may not get to experience the smell of all the pork Jason Bach cooked for us yesterday. Coming in, I hope that whets your appetite for our time together later today in our church picnic. All right, today we're going to continue our series through our church's distinctives. And these distinctives are descriptive of us right now by God's grace. And we are going to lean into them more to encourage us to excel still more. So our distinctives are also aspirational. This week, we're going to reflect on our fifth distinctive, which says this, we do life together, not alone. We deeply believe that the church is a family and not an event we attend. Our Christian faith is personal, but it is never private. Our abiding in Jesus, or lack thereof, always has a ripple effect on the community at large. God has saved us into his family, and our call is now to live out the one another commands in the New Testament for the glory of God. This distinctive is why we are committed to practicing meaningful church membership. This is also why we are relationally driven in our practices. So today, by the end of our time together, my prayerful goal for us is that we will value this distinctive in the life of our church even more for each of your own personal good, for our good as a church, and for the advancement of the gospel in and around our city. And so to help us see that this distinctive is clearly grounded in God's word, we're going to camp together today in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. So I hope you have a Bible in front of you. Make your way to Colossians 3. And as you make your way there, kids, all eyes on me for a minute. We're really glad that you're in service with us during the month of August. I want to give you a challenge right now to help you be a good listener because we need God's word even more than we need amazing smoked meats later today. Okay, kids? So to help you, I have a twofold challenge. One, if you can count how many times I say the word together, tell me after service and I'll have a treat for you at the picnic. Okay? The word together. Count it. Secondly, for those that want extra credit and to be on the varsity team, if you can tell me in your own words what a main takeaway is for you from this message, you can, if you meet the extra credit requirements, I didn't talk to my brother Jordan ahead of this, but I bet he'd love for you to throw water balloons at him later today. Okay? We love each other. We're a church family. Okay, so kids, that's my challenge to you as we go through this sermon together. All right, sound good? Right. Uh, Look at the Bible in front of you, put your finger on the page, and let's read aloud Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. This is God's word. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. All right, let's pray together and submit our time to the Lord. Father, we come today with great need and with great expectancy, needing to hear from you. Whatever we brought with us, 
here today, Lord. Fears or hurts, whatever burdens or unbelief we have, refresh us today with your glory and with your grace. Open your word to us this morning and open us to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so from our text, we're going to see three different things today, three different points of emphasis. First, who are we? Second, how should we live? And then third, what does this mean for us, for us as Gresham Bible Church? So first, who are we? So in order for us to really like feel the weight of these verses we're going to be in, in verses 12 through 15, it's important we have a little bit of context. So the book of Colossians, this should sound familiar. We were in Colossians about a year ago. The book of Colossians is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. Over and over again, the book of Colossians emphasizes if you're a Christian, that means you are in Christ Jesus. At the beginning of our chapter, chapter three, it starts with an if-then statement, just like the passage we were in last week in Philippians 2. If then, when you see that meaning since you are, right, it's a statement of reality, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, chapter three starts with. And then it describes what that looks like for the Christian. That looks like for the Christian putting off the old self and putting on the new self. That verse 10 says this new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And then, just so we have the context, right before our passage, look down at the text in front of you, verse 11 speaks to a powerful reality, that in this new creation that Christians become a part of, our foundational identity isn't to be in anything other than Christ, because Christ is in all. So that tees up where we're going to dive in and focus in together, starting in verse 12. So look down at verse 12. What's it say? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Notice what God's word says right in front of you. God's word speaks to our identity as Christians before it gives us commands to obey. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starts, put on then, then he reminds us of who we are, of our identity. For those that are in Christ, we are God's chosen ones. We are holy. We are beloved. So what, you can ask, okay, that sounds good. What does holy mean here, you might say? It means holy, okay? So we're not going to do any verbal gymnastics. Holy here means holy. So then you can think, well, why, if I'm already holy, am I called to put on these other things? Why tell holy people to be what the verses say right in front of you? Why tell a holy person to be compassionate, to be kind and humble, right, if you're already holy? So if you're holy and dearly loved, why do you have to put anything on is how you can be thinking about this text. And the reason why is because our lives as Christians are to flow from our identity as Christians. Those two things cannot be divorced, and you can't flip the order of those things. Basically, the idea here is Christians are to be who you already are in Christ. You're not adding anything to Christ's work for you. 
You are holy. You are dearly loved. So if you're a Christian, the gospel shouldn't be unclothed in your life. The gospel doctrine you profess should be adorned with the virtues of the gospel in your life. If you're not adorned with the virtues of the gospel, you are out of alignment with the gospel itself. You are out of alignment with your core foundational identity of who you are as a Christian. And again, virtues that I think we would all agree, I want that to be true of me, right? I want that to be true of my loved ones and my friends and our church. Virtues like compassion, it says, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Like who doesn't want those things to be described of you? But I'm curious, when you hear, when you read a passage like this, verses that call us to put on something or commands to do certain things, like how do you receive that? How do you typically hear that in your life? I bet if you're being honest, a lot of us do this the same way. The first way in which we hear it, like our default response, is that it's a New Year's resolution for me to conquer. I bet you hear it like it's a new health challenge or plan for you to conquer. But it's not. It's flowing first from your identity of who you are. So Christian, be who you already are. You're holy and beloved, so you're compassionate, you're kind, you're meek, you're patient. So I hope you can see the connection. I'm not making it up. It's right there in God's word in front of you. Put on then, and then what's your identity as a Christian? As one who's holy, as one who is beloved. And then the incentive to be those things flows from your identity. The power to live into those things flows from who you already are because you're in Christ, because you're holy and dearly loved. And again, it's not because of anything that you've earned that you're bringing to the table here to be compassionate. It's like what Deuteronomy 7 says that we're going to hear a lot in the fall when we're going to start our series in Deuteronomy 7, where the people of God basically ask God, God, why do you love us? And what does God say? I love you just because I love you. So that frees us up and gives us the power to live into our identity as Christians. We're holy and dearly loved because we're in Christ, because you're united to Christ, because Jesus took the penalty for your sin, right? And then he gave you his righteousness, his holiness, his dearly belovedness since the before the foundations of the earth in the Trinity. That's true of you. You are holy and dearly loved. So how does the connection of our identity to our behavior work as Christians? If we're really going to get this distinctive, we do life together and not alone, we got to be crystal clear on how this works in our lives as Christians. That our identity is the foundation for our virtue, for our behavior, for the fruit in our life as Christians. So, so think about it like this, okay? If my, my personal, your personal, if your holiness is the foundation of your identity, like your own holiness, the things you do and don't do, if that's the foundation for your identity, you're going to be a really 
insecure kind of person. I bet you're going to be really codependent on the approval of other people because you have to guard and protect your own holiness and your own like perception of how others see you, right? Someone, if you're the foundation of your holiness is your own holiness and not Christ, you're going to be crushed by the criticism of others and you're going to be fueled. Your pride's going to be fueled by the praise of other people. Your life is going to rise and fall because the foundation of your identity is your own work for yourself, your own holiness, rather than your identity in Christ, that you're holy because of Jesus for you. Because you're dearly loved by God in Christ, like just think about, I don't want us to miss this, the dynamics of how this actually works in your life. Because you're dearly loved by God in Christ, you're free and empowered to truly be compassionate, right? It's one of the virtues we see right here in Colossians 3. God's people are to be compassionate. Well, if your identity, foundation of your identity is in Christ, you're free to be compassionate, right? Because you see yourself how God sees you, as a sinner saved by grace. You are no better than anyone else. So your compassion is real compassion. You're not doing something for someone else to get something from them. You're demonstrating true compassion because your identity is secure in the work of Jesus for you. And then think about humility, okay? We're not going to have time to explore this in all the virtues, but I want to like hang this for us to make it clear in front of us. So what about humility? You could ask what humility is. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less, right? Can we all agree that's a good understanding of humility? Well, why is that true? Because if you're holy and dearly loved in Christ, dearly loved by God, again, that means you're honest about your sin, right? You're not trying to prop yourself up. You're honest, about the depth of your sin, but you're also honest that the depth of God's grace runs deeper still. You're dearly loved by God, so your, your humility is real. It's not like a propped up mask you're wearing so that people like think you're a really humble kind of person, right? It actually flows from who you really are foundationally at the core of your being because you're new in Christ, because you're holy and dearly loved. It's like what Tim Keller said. Keller said this, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. The dynamics of the gospel fuel real, true compassion, kindness, patience, humility in your life. So your identity as a Christian is the basis for these virtues and what makes these virtues actually true in your life, okay? Again, for the sake of time, we've only scratched the surface. I'd encourage you this next week, like spend time in Colossians 3. Talk to the Lord about it. Pray about it. How is this true in my life? Is my core foundational identity who I am in Christ, that I'm holy and dearly loved, by God? Or are you adding on your own holiness 
and your own dearly lovedness based on what you think of yourself or what other people think about you. So what does our identity in Christ and these virtues have to do with doing life together, not alone? What I just said can kind of sound individualistic, but we have a call in our distinctive to do life together and not alone. So why is this important? That brings us to our second point. How are we to live? And again, I just want you to like hear it and feel the beauty and the glory and the weight of these gospel virtues here in verses 12 through 15. Like what is to be true of us? We're to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We're to bear with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Above all these, scripture tells us we're to put on love. And what does this love do? Like, how's it play? What's it look like? That love binds everything together in perfect harmony. And then verse 15 seems to encapsulate all of this. And it's like the ultimate fruit of these kind of virtues when it says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. So I want you to like take a step back and ask, how does any of that make any sense? Like, what is that assuming? It's assuming the one anotherness of these virtues. It's assuming you are actually in real relationship with real other Christians. That's the context here, right? How do you know you're compassionate or meek? You can prop yourself up on social media to appear that kind of way, but you know in your heart of hearts you're not that. The context and environment for where this grows is doing life together actually in community, right? These virtues, when you think about it, like, again, who of us doesn't want this to be true of us? Like, if you were marked by these things, these virtues, with how you engage with the world, that'd be awesome, Like if other people, how they experience you said, I experience so-and-so, and and then they say these virtues, praise God, that's beautiful. But that's not ultimately what these virtues are about. For these gospel virtues to be real and not just hypothetical, it requires the one another of this, right? These one another's and the one another's that are throughout the New Testament, like our distinctive speaks to. And by implication, that means, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we are made to be grounded in a specific local church family with specific people that you do life with together. People you know by name. People you know their strengths and their weaknesses and their brokenness and their burdens. But then as you walk the long walk of obedience with Christ, you see one another being sanctified and made more and more into the image of Christ in a real kind of way because you actually know each other and you do life together. We can't divorce these virtues from the context of these virtues growing in community. If you take them out of the context, you're actually not being biblical. You're like making a really cool sign that can hang at Hobby Lobby, but it's not Christian. It's sub-Christian. The Christianness of this is leaning into this together, doing life together and not alone. Because when God saves you, he saves you into his family. He doesn't save you 
as a solo mission, Chuck Norris, Delta Force kind of Christian. He saves you into a family that needs each other, that's actually dependent on one another in these kind of ways, in a healthy, God-glorifying, gospel-centered kind of way. A life that's actually done together with a church family, with all of its relational beauty and all of its relational difficulties. A real church, not a pretend church, a real church. The Christian life is one that's to be lived in community because after all, as Christians, we worship a triune God, don't we? The God who's been in perfect relationship with himself for all eternity past. The God we worship is relational, so the life we're to live in following this God is a relational kind of life. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25 that's referred to in our distinctive puts it like this. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice it again, the one another. You can't assume the one another. You're not to forsake the gathering together to stir one another up because you're for each other. You're doing one another spiritual good. To have these virtues actually live in your life, for these to be true of you, you need to be in relationship with real Christians in your life that you do life together with. And I just want to be honest. Doesn't this push against us in a particular kind of way? Really in particular kind of ways. And I'm just going to say it. We love each other as GBC here. And part of love is that we speak truth. This pushes against, I don't know what it is, but it's something here in the Northwest. And it's in me too. It pushes against our individualistic ethos here in the Northwest. Doesn't it? It just does. You mean to follow Jesus, I'm supposed to do life together with other people? Yeah, that's what God's word says. But we don't gravitate to that because of like our presuppositions in the culture around us. Living together like this with other Christians, it pushes against our fear of really being known, of people actually knowing my real brokenness, my real weakness, right? It pushes into that and against it. To actually live life together with other Christians goes against our desire to want to control our lives. It goes against the consumerism and the idol of comfort that's in all of us. And we can't help it. That's the air we breathe in our time and place. But show me, again, I'm being upfront because I'm doing that in love. I hope you can hear my intent. Show me where in our passage here in Colossians 3, it calls us as Christians to live a life of independence or fear or control or consumerism or comfort. Is that what our verses say? It doesn't, does it? It calls us to a life of these gospel virtues being true of you because you're in real relationship with other Christians. Because God's word calls us to do life together and not just alone. And I can like hear it in my own heart. So I bet it's true of you. Some of you are like, yeah, amen. And I hope so-and-so hears this, right? Well, I just want to lovingly push back on you too. There's a ditch on the other side of the road. Even with the best of intentions, 
we can make community into an idol, right? But when we do that, we aren't actually living into or out of the one another commands of Scripture. That's because when we take community and put it as an end in itself, we lose real Christian community. Maybe some of you know this. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, Life Together, said this. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. Do you hear that? Probably see that a lot in the world around us, right? We all want community. Whether that's your favorite sports team, favorite hobby, whatever affinity it is, we gravitate towards community. But then when you make community an end in itself, you actually undermine real community. So we have to live into these gospel virtues in order to be and have the kind of community that God calls his people to have. The only sure foundation for real life-giving community, when you really think about it, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because only the gospel truly frees us to really love others. And then as we love others through the gospel, we cultivate the kind of community that we see here in Colossians 3, the kind of community that we all long for, the kind of community that like once you taste it, once you experience it, you don't want to settle for anything else. The other kind of communities in your life, they're probably not bad, but they're only a derivative of true gospel community. So what is this kind of community like that Colossians 3 calls us to? For one, if we're going to like get what God's word says, we have to face reality. Like it's been said, I want you to hear this. Consider it for yourself and for the life of our church. A church can unsay with its culture what it says with its doctrine and not even realize it. We could all gather on Sunday and check the box and affirm gospel doctrine and praise God for that, right? Gospel doctrine is what brings you into the family of God. But you can unsay with your life, we could unsay with our life as a church, the gospel we actually believe by not having a healthy culture and healthy community, by actually not doing life together. And that's because the vertical truth of the gospel, right? That you're holy and dearly loved because of God's work for you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. When that's applied to you, when that truth grips your heart, that can't help but impact your horizontal life in real relationships with other people. This is one reason why here at Gresham Bible Church, we like to talk about gospel doctrine and gospel culture not or gospel culture, or yeah, that'd be nice if that was true of us. These should both be descriptive and aspirational. It should be true of us, the culture of our church. And what do I mean by culture? Uh, I could say a few things. Back in my corporate world days, one time I was assigned to like lead a project to positively influence the culture of our department, blah, 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 blah. Well, what does culture even mean? When you boil it all down, this is helpful for me, like culture is just a repeated set of behaviors by a particular set of people. That's, that's what culture ends up being, right? So what do we mean by having a gospel culture in the life of our church? Really, that means it's a culture that's marked and animated by the gospel in our behaviors. How we actually do life together impacts and forms and creates and cultivates the kind of culture we have in the life of our church. 
So we all have skin in the game if we want to have a healthy culture in our church that treasures the gospel and that adorns the gospel in our lives. A church family where we actually value the one another's of scripture, where we actually truly, not just hypothetically, but in a real gritty kind of way, seeing people's faces that have done this for you and you with others that you actually bear with one another, right? Where you actually forgive one another because of how much the Lord has forgiven you. A community where we put on love and experience harmony with one another. How do you experience harmony all by yourself? You can't. Have you ever heard a choir have harmony and they're all by themselves? You actually have to be together and love each other to experience gospel harmony. A place where our church, if if this is going to be true of our church, where the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, then we have to see ourselves like right here in Colossians 3, that we're called in one body. We're called into God's family together. I can't help but think about it this last week. I'd, I'd encourage you to think about it just briefly. Like, what could that actually be like in the life of our church from what you see right here in Colossians 3? Like, what would that sound like, look like, feel like? For starters, I think it would really feel like all of us really fixing our gaze on the gospel. Really, truly when we gather and when we scatter in between when we gather, fixing the perfect work of Jesus Christ on your mind and on your heart, not assuming it. Really pressing the fullness of the gospel into your mind, like spending time meditating on the gospel. Spending time letting the gospel sink into your heart. Let it form your habits and behaviors. Let the gospel go into like the deepest layers of your heart, into those places you try to keep hidden from other people, and maybe even where you hide from God. Like, let the gospel go there. And then the gospel becomes freeing because of who you are in Jesus. And then that bubbles out into your relationships, and it forms a particular set of behaviors, and hence a certain culture in the life of our church. What would doing life together like this feel like? I bet it would feel like our church, and by God's grace, this is true of us, and may we excel still more. I bet it would feel like this place being a safe place to confess and repent of your sin. I bet it would feel like a place that you can come and be your true self here and lay down your mask of trying to earn people's acceptance and be honest about your sin and confess your sin and cling to your Savior. It would feel like a really life-giving kind of place. It would feel like a family. For those of you that are in a good family, that's like you're probably hearing me like, yeah, it's positive. For those that have broken families, I'm really sorry. But the family like that you were all called to experience is the family of God like this. So if this distinctive were to be true of us, how would it feel? It would feel like a place of belonging and identity, like the family of God that we're all called into being. A family that's animated by the gospel and together enjoys our foundational identity we have in Christ. 
That's basically the argument Paul is making right here in Colossians 3. And I just uh, am finding this in the moment a helpful, I'm going to take advantage of the, of the moment here, opportunity to say this. If we're a church like this, and I pray we are, we're going to disappoint one another. And so I'm just going to tell you, as one of your elders here, I'm going to disappoint you if I haven't done that already. So I'd ask you to forgive me when that happens, and let's have a gospel-centered kind of conversation. I'm going to disappoint you. We're going to disappoint each other if we're actually going to do life together in this kind of way. So the opportunity before us is what do we do with the relational frictions that happen in the real life of a real local church you're a part of? Do we lean into the power and the beauty of the gospel? Or do we pull back? Whichever choice you make, it'll have a ripple effect on the life and health of this church. You have skin in the game. We all have opportunity to shape the culture of this church by how we live into this or not. All right, so all this talk about doing life together and not alone, that can feel kind of like, all right, Mike, are you calling us to like build our holy huddle where we're all like really nice people that always have it all, all together and we don't care about Gresham? That is not what I'm saying in any way, shape, or form. And the reason I'm not saying that is because that's not what Jesus says, right? Jesus says how we actually love one another is basically the final apologetic for why non-Christians are not find Jesus compelling. Will people believe Jesus is who he said he is? One of the main ways they're going to, going to do that is actually seeing us love one another. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Gresham Bible Church, does Gresham know Jesus is true and beautiful and gracious and sovereign and loving with how we love one another? That's the opportunity in front of us. And when you think about it, like just think about the early church and like what exploded across the Roman Empire. It was these true gospel doctrines that were faithfully proclaimed to the point of being martyred by the early Christians, right? And it was also the culture of these Christians that exploded across the world at that time. A whole different kind of culture that the Roman Empire found extremely compelling. These people love one another sacrificially. They lay their lives down. They serve those on the margins. They're willing to die saying Jesus is king. Like that's what we're called to. And that's what's happened by those saints that have gone before us. A community that loved one another sacrificially, as we're called to love one another sacrificially. A community that welcomed one another, as we're called to welcome one another. Right? That makes Jesus known. It gives non-Christians a compelling reason to be like, yeah, this gospel thing, it's beautiful. It actually lives imperfectly in the lives of other people in my community. So we should like pray for our church that we're a community that's marked by a supernatural kind of love because we have a loving supernatural kind of king. Okay, that's what is before us. And as I've been thinking about this, the health of our church is 
key and central to the mission of our church, to advancing the gospel, again, I think we have a tremendous opportunity in God's providence ahead of us. I bet if you were to talk to some of your non-Christian friends, classmates, coworkers, neighbors, I bet especially for those who are in Gen Z, I bet the last thing they want is more show, more glitz, more glamour. I bet what they want is actually real community, seeing people actually love one another like this, imperfectly, but something that speaks to a whole different kind of king and a whole different kind of kingdom. So that's why and how the health of our church, being gospel-centered, doing life together, it is really important for the advancement of the gospel in us and through us as well. So think about like, who we are, our identity as individual Christians, we're holy and beloved, and what's our identity as a local church? We're an embassy of the kingdom of Jesus. It should look and feel and sound like that. Like when we gather, we're an embassy of a better kingdom. That's who we're called to be in our lives, and then when we gather every Sunday. All right, as we move to a close, our last point is... How should we live in light of this? And how I want to frame that question is, what could maybe get in the way from us actually being this kind of church who does life together and not alone? And again, there's multiple applications for this. For one, we're going to have a sermon in a few weeks about why we value church membership at GBC. Um, things that can get in the way of this are multitude in our own hearts and our society, right? And the society that gets more and more polarized, more and more anxious and angry, more and more about tribalism and virtue signaling, right? So the, these gospel virtues of actually doing life together, it pushes against the cultural tides. So what could get in the way of us living in this kind of way, living together in real relationships where we actually forgive each other, love each other, we're compassionate to one another. Technology gets in the way, doesn't it? Social media gets in the way. Expressive individualism gets in the way. Identity politics gets in the way. The next election cycle gets in the way where we start to divide rather than pull together in our core foundational identity in Christ. The breath we breathe that we inhale every day is one of individualism and bending everything inward upon ourselves and our preferences and our consumerism. But as Christians, we're called to be a church that has a culture that's animated more by the gospel than our culture. So again, I'm just going to say one thing that can get in the way of this, and I'm saying this in love towards myself and towards us as a church to be a faithful under-shepherd. One thing that can get in the way of this is busyness. I bet you'd all like agree with me, right? Just think of what our lives normally look like in this time and place. How busy are we? When you see someone, maybe someone you haven't seen in a while, or maybe one of your closest friends and you run into each other at the grocery store. Hey, how's your week been? How you doing? I bet one of the first things that's going to come out of that person's mouth because it comes out of mine is how busy we are right? How busy we are. But our busyness actually pulls against what we're called to here in Colossians 3. If you're to do actual life together, 
with real people, that means you have to prioritize that. You have to value being in those kind of relationships. So again, what can get in the way of doing life together is busyness. And again, probably a lot of you are like, yes, Carrie and I have been talking about this in our life. So I get it. It's a real thing, but we have to see it and consider it and reflect on the busyness in our life in a way where we're putting God's word in front of us and the culture God is calling us to and not only what our culture values. Because in our time and place, we're pulled in so many different directions. So many things vie for our attention and our energy. And even those are a lot of like really good things. But those are things that build on one another, that stack on each other to the point of you being frantic, (laughs) to the point of actually starting to be the frog in proverbial boiling water and reflecting the culture around us rather than the kind of culture God calls us to, of actually doing real life together. Because again, when God saves you, Christian, he saves you into his family. Yes, the worldwide family of God once for all time for all the saints that have gone before us and a real life, particular local church family. Prioritizing your church family is increasingly a challenge in our post-Christian culture, isn't it? As I've just been reflecting on this and it's only going to become more and more of a challenge. For those of us with kids still in our roof, Think about what this looks like in your life. How many kids' events, and I'm just going to say it, youth sporting events are now scheduled on Sundays? Can we go there? Is that okay to go there? I'm going there. A lot more, and that's only going to continue. So how are you going to love and lead your family to prioritize doing life together in a post-Christian culture that is going to pull you against that? Okay? And I'm not putting in front of us like a new kind of legalism or saying you can't ever go to church or don't value you sports. I love sports, okay? But there comes a point you have to have boundaries in your life and certain markers to know, am I reflecting more the values of my culture or the values of Christ? Because you, Christian, are called to a life of actually living in community with one another in this kind of way. So I am in this place right now where I'm launching our two oldest kids here in two weeks, driving them down to send them away to college. I know a lot of you in this room are either some of those same kids that are launching or same parents. So I've been in reflective mode, reflecting on how have I discipled my kids. By God's grace, we've had some blessings and some failures and everywhere in between, just like all of us, right? But thinking about what lays before us in busyness and how it pulls against doing life together. I bet if you don't value and prioritize doing real life together in the local church, you shouldn't be surprised when you launch your kids and they end up not valuing it either. Because you've said one thing with your mouth, but said a whole different thing with your lifestyle. That you don't actually value life in the local church and being part of God's family. Again, I'm not saying that to heap condemnation on us. I'm saying that because these are the places that God's word takes us to, and we have to prayerfully and humbly reflect, am I in alignment with this or not in our day-to-day lives? So parents or future parents, 
members of GBC that should care about every young person in the life of this church. How you're discipling your kids, you're discipling them into something. Is it real Christian community or not? Will your children value doing life together with other Christians in a real local church? You have the opportunity in front of you to disciple our kids into that. Because again, we can say one thing with our mouth, but we say a whole other thing entirely with our lives. What kind of legacy do you want to give your kids? Do you want to give a legacy of valuing the community of the saints, of life together as a church, or do you want to give them the value of prioritizing the outdoors? And I love the outdoors. I'm going backpacking with Noah tomorrow. Do you want to value the highest value as youth sports? Who can ever say youth sports is bad? But we live in a spiritual kind of world, don't we? So it shouldn't be surprising to us that there's certain things that maybe pull against us in certain kind of ways, living into this kind of spiritual health. So our identity as Christians helps us live intentionally so we reflect God's values more than our culture's values. And I hope you're hearing this in the way it's intended, in a gracious kind of way because of our identity in Christ. Yes, love your kids well. Yes, advance the gospel in our community. Yes, be in real relationships with non-Christians who need Jesus. And, and prioritize and value doing life together as a local church. Because when you think about it, is busyness going to save you? It won't. At some point, it's only going to lead you to burnout. It's only going to exhaust you and disappoint you, no matter what you're busy in. Busyness will only disciple your children into the ways of our culture rather than the gospel culture of a church family. So we have to value, we have to prioritize what God's word calls us to because of who we are. So be who we already are. All right, I'm gonna leave us with this. Probably a lot of you are like nodding externally or internally. You're like, yeah, I've been talking with my friends about this. Maybe you and your spouse just got in a fight about this. Be true for Carrie and I, so it wouldn't be alone. What do you actually do to change, okay? How do you change this? Well, first of all, you have to reorient yourself to what your foundational identity is, that you're holy and dearly loved as a Christian, right? Because out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth will speak and you'll live your life. So your busyness, when you reverse engineer it, it's really just an overflow of a misplaced identity, If you're starting to feel burnout because of busyness, that should be like a light on your dashboard, a warning light that's just flashing right in front of you, right? Because busyness can often be an indicator that you're actually starting to drift from the gospel. Maybe you you don't want to believe that. Maybe you're not there yet, but that's the trajectory it can go on. When you're overly busy, when I'm overly busy, I'm really living out of the false belief that my productivity is what's going to save me, that my productivity is what makes God really happy and why people really like like me and accept me. But that's not true. I'm holy and dearly loved because of Christ's work for me, not my work for him first. And what's amazing, you're like, yes, I want this to be true of me. 
God uses crooked sticks. We're all off in different ways here, right? We're calling, may this be descriptive of us and aspirational. But what's amazing when you look at these gospel virtues done in the life of the local church, the church functions as a greenhouse that where these virtues grow, right? Because doing life together actually helps you prize and prioritize the gospel even more and more in your life. That's the beauty of what God calls us to, to do life together and not alone. All right, I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, we praise you that through Christ we're holy and dearly loved. We praise you that you've done perfectly what you call us to do. Father, I pray that you'll reorient us and renew us in light, Lord, of your great work for us and who we are in you. We confess and repent that too often we prize our individualism and our comfort and our preferences more than the one another's of the gospel that you call us into and that you equip us for. By your grace, help us as a church to grow more and more into a kind of people who live lives marked by gospel virtues. And Father, for any here today that don't know you yet, I pray you will awaken in them an appetite for Jesus Christ, that they will turn from their sin turn from looking for their belonging and their desire for community and other things outside of you. Father, make us a gospel people through your spirit whose identities are secure in your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.